All right, let's look at our scripture, uh, one of the most famous chapters uh, in the scripture, indeed in the whole world, used by Christians and non-Christians alike, because it speaks so beautifully of the topic of love. This is the Apostle Paul. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. If I was to use the phrase, this is the way, how would you respond? Some of you would say, what the heck are you talking about? Other of you would know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It was the phrase used uh, in Disney's hit series, The Mandalorian, uh, a story about a mythical group, uh, a warrior culture that lived by a code, lived by a way, and they would reiterate this phrase, this is the way to help remind each other of what they were all about. But what was the way of The Mandalorian? It was to always wear their helmet. Why, I don't exactly know. And to protect all other members of the tribe of the clan at all costs, even with your life if necessary. This is the way is another uh, way of using uh, a Latin phrase called sumum bonum, which means the highest or the ultimate good. If you think of a system of ethics, it is that the aim of one's actions which, if consistently pursued, will lead to the best life. It's the North Star by which you navigate to where you're trying to go. And cultures have their ways where they would be able to uh, say this is the way, or maybe they don't even know what the way is, but they live it. So if you think of the Japanese culture, particularly around World War II, that the way was a way of honor. And if your honor, if you were not able to live up, you must die. And we saw that with the Japanese soldiers. The way for those, the followers of Buddha, are, is acceptance and detachment. That is the way. 
in Western civilization, particularly in the United States, the way that we follow is the way of self-fulfillment. In other words, there is no specific way, no specific highest good other than to find whatever is best for you and to attain it, self-fulfillment. Well, what about the Corinthians? What is the sumum bonum for them? What is the way? They have come to Christ. They're in the church, but they are also still in Corinth. And we see the problem that the culture is permeated into the church so much that they continue to live by the old way. And the old way is all about attaining position and prestige. And so they're even using things like spiritual gifts as tools to navigate and attain the position, the highest position in the church. In fact, they've written to Paul asking, which is the greatest spiritual gift? And Paul is answering. He answered in chapter 12, and he's going even further. And what Paul is saying in this chapter is that the way is not, the greatest thing is not position. It's not prestige. It's not honor. It's not self-fulfillment. The greatest thing is love. It's not what you have been gifted to do. It's not what you do, but it's how you do it that matters. That the gift and the action are the conduit in which love is meant to flow to others. Otherwise, it's useless. The question he's answering with the Corinthians is not which is the greatest spiritual gift, but rather, do you love? Well, what is my greatest good as a Christian? Maybe in your mind, in your heart, it's if I had this particular gift, this particular ability or knowledge or the ability to speak or to lead. Or if I had this particular reputation in the church, if I had this position. But the answer, of course, is it's none of these things. It's love. Christ frees us from the prison of performance, possessions, and reputation. Because he loved us when we had none of these things. And he calls us to take the love that he has for us into the world. So let the love of Christ be the way that you walk and the code that you keep. We're going to look at three things that Paul documents as he's showing that love is the greatest thing. Number one, we're going to look at the supremacy of love. Then number two, we're going to look at the character of love. And then finally, we're going to look at the permanence of love. So let's start with number one, the supremacy of love. Paul begins in, in verses one through three with three if-then statements, these hypothetical statements. And notice that they're in the first person. He's using himself as an example. If I speak in the language of men or of angels. Now he's speaking to the church, but he's really uh, using himself as a buffer to soften uh, the blow a little bit. He's uh, saying that um, it's a subtle way of telling the church, I'm talking about you. But these statements are autobiographical. They're about things that Paul has learned. The first thing he says is, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
Remember, the big issue in the church here has been the Corinthians, some of them have been speaking in tongues and claiming that that is the uh, marker of the highest spiritual maturity. Paul is saying that if I speak in those tongues, and remember, Paul actually says in verse 14 that he speaks in tongues more than everybody else. He's saying, if I had this gift of speaking in tongues, indeed, if it even went so far as to be given the language of angels to speak. And what's very interesting is Paul has actually heard the language of angels. In 2 Corinthians 12, we see that he was caught up to paradise, and he heard things inexpressible that man is not able to tell. Paul is saying, if I was able to actually do that, but I have not love, that actually I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the orchestra, but the guy that has most time on his hands in an orchestra is the guy who hits the cymbals. Why? Well, because the cymbals are only meant to be hit every so often, right? They're an accent piece. It's if you're constantly hitting the cymbals, what happens? If you ever put a child on a drum set, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They go right to the cymbals and they start banging the cymbals. And instead of an accent point, it becomes irritating and grating. There's nothing glorious about it. There's no crescendo. Instead, it's make it stop. See, the people who are wondering, they're, they're listening for Paul to say, yes, indeed, this is the greatest gift, are bound to be disappointed when they hear Paul's exclamation here. Indeed, notice what he says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's saying that for those who actually want to do that, they actually become something other than what they intended. He continues on, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he's speaking of uh, understanding. If he had prophetic powers, remember to be a prophet was to be able to speak the words of God, that God was actually giving you the words to speak, to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, in such a way that you would write it down because it was scripture itself. And keep in mind, that's Paul's job, right? He's an apostle. We are reading the very words of God that he's written down. So he's speaking, if I could do this, which I can, and I could understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Paul speaks of the mystery and the insight he has into the gospel. Maybe more than anyone on the face of the earth, he has had greater insight into the mysteries of the world. And yet, Paul even acknowledges that we know only in part. But he's saying, if I could know the whole, if I could understand all things, imagine if you could do that, that you would know what happens tomorrow, that you would know the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow, which is 20.1 miles per hour. Monty Python, I know, it's a little bit removed. If I had faith that could remove mountains. This is another way of saying I was able to do the impossible. Paul certainly had faith and has performed miracles. If I could do all of these things, Paul is saying, 
but I don't have love. I am nothing. The lack of love not only invalidates the gift, it actually invalidates the person. Paul is saying without love, you don't have an identity. It's like you don't even exist. He goes on, if I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Imagine if you were to go home to begin to sell off all of your possessions. Everything you own, the house, the car, the furniture, everything for the poor, to give everything you had. The world would say, what a servant. But Paul is saying if there was no love in it, it would be a waste. If I deliver my body to be burned, think of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, right? Say, I will not serve your God. Go ahead and do with me whatever. If you were to do that, but not to have love, you would gain nothing. It would be a waste. See, what Paul is saying is it's not what you've been gifted to do, not even what you do, but why you do it that matters. Because it's the motive behind the action that gives it its spiritual power and significance. And we've felt this in our life, haven't we? If you ever had someone who's given you words, kind words, but there was no emotion behind them, there was no love, rather than comforting, rather than encouraging, they felt hollow and deceptive? Or have you seen actions of charity that had no love behind them? They were cold and they were unfeeling. You hear two pastors give the exact same sermon, and one of them has love in their hearts and the other does not. The words may be the same, but the impact is vastly different. Paul is saying it's love that is supreme. And why is it that love, among all other things, is supreme? It's because God is love. Now, remember, God is not a feeling. God is a person. And a person has a personality, characteristics, and qualities. And God has many, right? He's righteous. He's holy. He's just. But at the apex of them all is that he is love. God's sumum bonum is love. Notice what 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. All attributes and actions stem from this overarching truth that God is love. Now, how do we know that God is love? Think that the words God is love would have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. But before all things, there was this love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We see Jesus allude to it in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 24, where he says, Father, 
I pray that those you have given me would be with me to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, many would say that the summum bonum of God is that God is holy. But I would say that it is God is love. See, why is God holy? And the answer is because he loves himself, Father, Son, and Spirit so much that he holds himself in the highest regard. Think about it. When you love someone really, really deeply, you put them on a pedestal in the right way, right? You lift them up. You make sure that no one else speaks ill of them. You laud them to the heavens. God is holy because he is loving. And God is the source of love. We read in the scripture here just a little while ago in praying the scripture, let us love one another for love is from God. Love comes from God and love points back to him. It's like when you see love, there is a string that is connected to it that draws our attention to the heart of God. For where love is, God is. And you cannot find it from anywhere else. The universe itself was founded on love. What do I mean by that? See, the sun, by its very nature, has to shine. It cannot keep it in. In the same way, God, by his very nature, has to love. Love, by its very nature, must bless. And the universe is the overflow of God's love for himself to creation and especially to mankind. See, we see in this passage that love never fails or love never falls is the actual Greek. Think of it. It's like a, 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 the, the term to fall is to die in the Old Testament, to fall, to not get up. Love never falls. What he's saying is that it never stops. It never ceases. We think that love is like a firework. You know, it goes up, it blasts, and then it's over. But that is not love. You see, love continues to reverberate and propagate and transform. The change, the act of love continues on and on. And so this love that God has for himself must by its very nature, overflow. And so it does into the universe. Do you know that the universe is actually expanding? And indeed, around the time that man was created, it actually accelerated in its expansion. Because God's love endures forever. It transforms, it extends, and it continues on and on and on. Think of the people that have had the greatest positive impact in your life for good. They are the ones who loved you. It's not just what they did for you, right? It's why they did it for you. I was cleaning out, uh, uh, my wife and I were cleaning out an old file, filing cabinet and I found something. Uh, these are the governing principles of Jerry Leachman. Jerry was my mentor, my spiritual father. I came to 
faith at, at age 18. And uh, Jerry kind of took me into his home and for the next 10 years really taught me what it meant to love God. And uh, I haven't seen these governing principles, I bet, for three decades. And it was very interesting to read them, to make disciples of others, to love my wife and children as Christ loved the church, to be a responsible and dependable man, to live by faith, to be grateful. You know, I have a set of governing principles that I've written as well. And as I compared mine to Jerry's, I found an eerie similarity. See, it's the love that Jerry had as he poured into me that changed and transformed my life forever and continues to propagate in the way that I live and the way that I love and in my children and so on and so on. See, actions speak louder than words, but motives speak louder than actions. So what is your aspiration in your Christian life? Is it I need more knowledge? I need a greater understanding of the vicissitudes of inaugurated eschatology. But you see, theology without love is dead. Theology is for doxology, for praise and love. Is it I need more faith? I need to stop doubting. I need to accomplish more. If I only had more faith, I would be more powerful in the kingdom. Paul said, the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe it's self-denial. I've got to stop taking care of myself. I need to expend myself more. I need to serve more. All of these things are good and important, but without love, they're useless. So examine your motives. What is driving me? Performance? Possessions? Reputations? Throw it out the window and choose to see love as the supreme goal of your life. Let the love of Christ be the way that you walk and the code that you keep. This brings me to my next point, the character of love. Paul goes on after these first if-then statements and begins to distill and describe love. It's like he's taking light and shooting it through a prism into its different elements. Now, it's important that you understand that this is not an exhaustive Description of love. Paul is tailoring it as a very subtle indictment of the Corinthians and what they are lacking and not doing in their congregation. One of the things he does when he's using this description about love, of it being patient and kind and not envying and not boast, we read it, but actually, if you look at the Greek, he's not using adjectives to describe love, but verbs. 15 of them in three verses. So it's not love is patient, it's love patience. It's not love is kind, it's love kinds. Love is an action. It's dynamic and active. 
It's not something conveyed simply in words. It has to be shown. It's active and propagates. There's no way in the time I have that I'm going to be able to describe and discuss each one of these characteristics. We're going to go ahead and do that next week. But I want to touch on just a couple of them, the first two. Now, remember, we have said that God is love. So we could take this description and substitute the word God for love, couldn't we? God is patient, or God patience. God kinds. God doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. God is not proud. God does not seek self. And on and on it goes. See, love is a verb. But we also know that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to manifest the love of God. That Jesus is the verb of God's love. 1 John 4, 9 puts it this way. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the love of God made manifest. The smile of God. The yes of all of the promises that he has made to his people. So an even more accurate way to put it would be this, that God in Jesus Christ loves, that God in Jesus Christ patience, that God in Jesus Christ is kind, and so on and so on. So let's touch on these first two, that instead of just saying that love is patient, we see that Christ is patient. The word patient, if you translate it literally in the Greek, means long-suffering. To be patient is to deny what you want in order to help someone else get what they want. We have uh, opportunities to do this all the time, right? To be long-suffering. If you've ever lived with an, uh, or spent much time with an intellectually disabled person, it takes them much longer to do things than other people, because they're just slower at doing them. And there's a part of you that says, I, I got to go do stuff. I've, let me do it for you. But you wait and you sit silently because you're patient. You bear with them. God in Christ is long-suffering with us. See, we were born into this world rebellious against God. That every action was a manifestation of our rejection of him as our God. That we should have glorified and given thanks to him, and we did not. And even as redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you are a follower of Christ, all too often we place ourselves on the throne and neglect his rule. Any normal person should have wiped us out long ago. Right? You know somebody who constantly is a thorn in your side, constantly is scheming against you, right? What do you want to do? I don't have time for this rebellion. You want to get them out of your life as soon as possible and be done with them. 
But Christ was long-suffering for us. To redeem us, he long-suffered. He came into this world, a man. And when his ministry began, he spent 40 days in the desert with no food. 40 days is about the longest you can live without food as a person before having permanent damage. And then was tempted to forget about humanity, to care for himself. And yet he refused. His life was a life of suffering. Indeed, Hebrews 2.10 says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom uh, and through whom everything exists should make the offer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He suffered through the continuous onslaught of the world, of Satan, for his 33 years of life. C.S. Lewis put it this way. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. 33 years of active obedience to the Father to then get up on a cross and die. That, my friends, is long-suffering. And why did he do it? Love. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. And so he suffered in our place. And he was not only patient with us then, but he's patient with us now. We have this misnomer in our hearts that Christ is constantly upset with us. He's constantly bearing with us. Hurry up. What's the matter with you? I did all of this for you. You should be further along. But Jesus knows that we are not yet complete. That we are no longer cockroaches. We are butterflies in the caterpillar stage. And we still stumble. And he is long-suffering with us. Because it is his nature. God doesn't have patience. God is patient. And God has put his nature inside of you through the Holy Spirit. And you are a new creation. And though the flesh wars against you, you are slowly being conformed to the image of Christ. We were made to be patient as well. But God in Jesus Christ is not only patient, he's also kind. Kind 
is to be gracious and benevolent. You ever notice how Jesus just did a, went around just doing good things for people? Just caring for people. It's his nature to be this way. His nature to feel others' pain and to have compassion on them. In Luke 7, 12, as he approached the town, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. When Jesus saw the rich young ruler, tortured as he was, saying, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He looked at him and he loved him. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God in Jesus Christ does not treat us as our sins deserve, because it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And God is kind to us now in Jesus Christ. Every day there are innumerable gifts around us. Little ways that God is saying to us, I love you. I'm thinking of you. Indeed, we know that even every single thing in our life is for the ultimate good of conforming us to the image of his son. Everything in some way, shape, or form, even if we can't understand it now, is a gift and a blessing. Paul is calling the church, to be these things that Christ is to us. You know, it was the kindness of Christians in the second century that so surprised their pagan counterparts that they called the Christians Christiani, which means made up of mildness or kindness rather than Christiani. Christ is calling us to this way, for this is the way. But you may say to me, well, that's Jesus. How can I live this way? How can I? I mean, I try to be more kind and long-suffering, but I always seem to get in my way. The truth, my friends, is we cannot create love on our own. You know, if we synthesize all colors, we can make the color white, but we cannot make light. Synthesizing all the virtues, and we can make virtue, but we cannot make love. So how are we then to live lives of love? Is it simply strengthening our will and making rules and watching and acting? Yes, these are all things important, but they alone will not bring love out of us. Because love has an effect. It's not a cause. And this is what the cause is. We love, says 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. Jesus is the cause. He is the love that awakens our hearts to love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We experienced unconditional love for the first time when we met Jesus Christ. All other love is conditional to some extent, but not his. 
And what he did, he continues to do, to be the source of our love. He continues to be all of these things to us, kind and patient and loving and always trusting and hoping and never failing. He says to come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Notice what it says. We love present tense because he first loved us. It's he who empowers and enables us to love as we rely on the love that he has for us. As 1 John 4, 16 says, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. I don't know if you remember those pictures of the first scuba divers. They weren't called scuba divers. They were just divers. They would wear this big bell helmet, remember? Attached to the suit and there was a hose that was going and they would descend to the depths but that hose would be continually pumping air into the air bell so that they could breathe, so they could do what they needed. The problem was that line would get longer and longer, right? And maybe it would kink or someone would step on it and the air would get cut off. But we take our air with us wherever we go. For through the Holy Spirit, Christ and his Father is inside of us. We can rely on love that never fails. The Corinthians are forsaking the love of Christ to go after the world's love, but we don't have to do that. God is calling us to receive and rest on the love of Christ, to remain in his love, and then to be little Christ's to one another as he empowers and strengthens us. To love our husband and our wife, our parents and our children, our brothers and sisters in Christ, even our enemies. Where do you go for love? To the world? To the bank? To the internet? To the bottle? Rest in the love of Jesus Christ. Rest in it, and it will overflow. This brings me to my final point, the permanence of love. In the end, there is only two things that will remain. The love of God and the objects of his love, people. See, spiritual gifts, they have a built-in obsolescence to them. They have a shelf life. They will not be needed in heaven. But love will be there. They're just tools to love. Ways to express the love we have with the way God has made us. You know, the older I get, the more I feel the sand in the hourglass. And the more I feel the importance of living in only that which really makes a difference. So how do I impact the world? With my preaching? With my teaching? There's not love in it. It's just a gong. It's just a clanging cymbal. If I have faith in Jesus but not love for people, I've missed it. If I sacrificed everything I have but I don't have love, it's a waste. But it's not about the great things, right? 
was Mother Teresa who said, there are no great things, only small things done with great love. So examine your life. Is it full of love? If not, I have to go back to Christ. Fill me with your love. Show me what I am and who I am to you. So much so to take that love into the world. For love takes practice and school is in session. Look around you. There are plenty of opportunities to be a conduit of God's love here at Redeemer Presbyterian. So let the love of Christ be the way that you walk and the code that you keep. For this is the way. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that your love for us never fails and never falls. And you desire to fill our hearts with love so much that they would burst into the world. God, let us throw off all counterfeit loves and to come before you and to receive and rest in this love that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And would you make us vessels of love, that that would be our summum bonum, the way in which we walk. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.